0: we are hanging our hat on it's mm. the ability to uh to not only have uh, validated because that's also important if you scale with something that's bad you're scaling bad things
1: hey we got uh, opt inc in the, in the house um this is the, the unique situation uh, most of the founder is here uh, but also you brought in your uh, one of your advisors UN, uh, who's uh, calling in from Boston. Uh, glad to have both you guys on and talk a little more about uh, something I've been really looking forward to with a neuroscience-based company. Um, Wilson, I, I when we first talked, you know, I, I talked to you like my uh, when we I explained to you that I did my undergrad in neuroscience and I love nerding out about how the brain and how it works and and like the feedback loops that we have in our everyday life. And I love talking to companies who are, you know. Working on optimizing ourselves and making ourselves better. So glad to have you on, Mosin. What's what's going on?
2: Oh, well, uh, thank you very much for having us. And uh, well, uh, you know, glad to have somebody else uh, from uh, my background. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, just to give you a background about the company. Uh, so what we do is that uh, we uh, opt is a digital mental health platform targeted mm-hmm. at uh, healthcare organizations and mental health care providers uh, and uh, equip them with uh, clinically validated digital care plans and proprietary AI algorithms to increase their uh, personnel efficiency and care capacity by up to four times. Hmm. And uh, the way, uh, you know, the whole thing, I mean, uh, I'm a medical doctor, and then I did the neuroscience, and now I'm uh, working on a company. I mean, it's like, a lot of people is like, scratch their head, you know, uh, how did, did that get to here? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, uh, when I graduated from medical school, I was really interested in understanding how the brain works. And. How uh, its dysfunction, you know, uh, gives rise to different diseases, and that's why I started doing a PhD in neuroscience at Queen's University, and later I uh, you know, did a postdoc at Rutgers University on computational neuropsychiatry, and uh, soon I became uh, disillusioned that uh, the brain is too complicated for us mm-hmm. uh, to. to have a grasp on it, you know, uh, in a meaningful way that we can uh, actually develop uh, something that uh, works in the level of cells or networks, the same way that the rest of the diseases and treatments uh, are formed. On the other hand, uh, my wife, she's a psychiatrist and um, assistant prof at Queen's University. Uh, back in 2006, you know, when, when we finished uh, medical school, she has started doing research. Uh, in uh, delivering um, psychotherapy online. and the back story is on we had a lot of friends uh, who uh, you know, uh, left Iran to uh, do a graduate study outside Iran, and you know, starting a, a new, uh, you know, a graduate program in a different country is stressful. Um, enough, and they didn't have uh, access to much resources. And uh, Nazanin at the time thought that, uh, well, uh, why wouldn't we provide care using the internet? Everybody has access to emails. And that is how she started doing research on delivering psychotherapy online. And uh, so she would uh, send the content, uh, you know, therapeutic content to Uh, you know, the participants in her uh, experiments using emails, you know, and uh, there were um, like a PowerPoint, then there was uh, a workbook, they did the workbook, they would email it back, you know, and Nazanin would provide feedback, there would be uh, multiple emails, you know, exchanged. And actually worked really amazing, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, So she did uh, a clinical trial looking at the efficacy in uh, anxiety, depression, personality disorder. So uh, by 2015, she had done like five clinical trials showing this actually works really well. And um, at that time, I told her, like, what you do is amazing, but email is not the right medium. Uh, it's not, uh, you know, secure enough, not scalable or sustainable. So I suggested to make a platform that she can communicate uh, securely with her patients online. Um, And so it was really built for her. And uh, so we have been working on that to, you know, taking uh, the bugs out. And uh, in 2018, uh, we actually won uh, the Mental Health Innovation Zone Award in American Psychiatric Association meeting. And we felt that, well, it seems that uh, this is uh, getting advanced enough uh, that we could make it commercially available to other care providers like just like Nazanin uh, so they could use in their own uh, practices. And that's when we uh, you know, Opt got incorporated. And um, you know, back in 2019, I felt that you know, I have tried to go from the cellular side and circuit side, and but the solution the really simple solution that uh, my wife was using is much more helpful than any um, incremental you know kind of uh, improvement that I could do and thought why not uh, try to uh, you know uh, combine that uh, clinical expertise with my uh, you know scientific background on uh, uh, precise measurements and evidence-based decision-making to make a platform uh, that essentially would, uh, you know, uh, transform how we are practicing uh, uh, psychiatry and mental health care delivery.
1: Hmm. I mean, it, it was like a, it's a very elaborate kind of a, like way to start a company because these, you know, starting from a research perspective is always difficult, right, to commercialize. Uh, take a research perspective and uh, commercialize into an into an operations uh, perspective. Um, can you talk a little about that? Like, how do you take research, like something that's uh, something that's like very academic, and turn it into a company? You know, w- where does the cost benefit come from, right? How do you see that? Like, you know, I got to form a company around this.
2: Well, to be fair, like I- I'm not a seasoned, you know, uh, executive, right? Uh, mm. I really, I had a vision and. I felt, uh, you know, uh, this might be the way to do it, but there was no other way to do it, so I decided to do it myself, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know whether that is good or bad, you know, uh, to be fair, I have learned a lot over the last uh, three, four years, you know, trying to make this as a business. You know, you you are really, uh, at the beginning, you're naive, you think that, okay, if I have, a good solution, uh, naturally people uh, would uh, come around and adopt it, which cannot be farther from the truth, right? Uh, there are a lot of, uh, you know, uh, details in actually making an idea, um, you know, or a simple uh, a product into an actual business. And that is really where uh, uh, UN, uh, you know, came to, uh, uh, you know, uh, picture and because you know I had some uh, that research experience uh, expertise and you know what I could do with making a pl- uh, product but actually making a business uh, you know needs much more than that and that's why I uh, um, I was lucky enough to have UN join uh, our team uh, so uh, we could uh, take advantage of her his uh, you know yeah long, uh, twenty years of experience in healthcare to actually make this into a successful business.
1: definitely. you and we we got introduced uh, uh, over the call our, our last call, and uh, we didn't get much into the chance of introductions. could you could you go over um, a little bit about yourself and your history? I think we you froze right there a little bit. did did you can you hear me okay?
0: Uh, yeah, I did freeze, and I apologize for the technical difficulties that I'm having. I thought this was behind me by getting a new router, but I guess not. We were,
1: we were doing so good, so and then suddenly if, we had a technical I'm issue. I'm having okay. a hard, hard time. Okay.
0: So, yes. Okay, I'm I'm back, it sounds like. Yeah. Let me let me dial back in uh, in, a few, in in a minute from my mobile phone,
1: okay? Okay, hopefully that helps out. Okay, no problem. Yeah, thank you. Okay, Wilson. Um, so speaking a little bit about that, um, so you you said you, you have a medical background. You're a medical. You a, you're a, you're, a, you're a doctor, um, yeah. and you also have a PhD. Yes. <laughs> Man, that's <laughs> that's ambitious,
2: right? Well, uh, you know, studying and doing research uh, was the thing that I. Uh, could uh, do best, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, that's, uh, I was hoping that to make a, a living out of that. Uh, we'll see. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> but yeah, okay. uh, yeah. Can, you, can you talk a little bit about, about that? Like, you know, the thought process of, you know, going going to all the way to med school and deciding instead of practicing, I want to go, you know, do a PhD and become more academic focused. Um, how did that kind of uh,
2: develop? Um, You know, uh, I'm, uh, I don't know if it's good or bad. Uh, I'm somebody that gets bored doing the same thing again and again. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in the medical school, you know whenever we went to a new ward and we learned about a specific disease, you know, the first ten cases were like fantastic. you know, it's, just, it's so engaging thinking about it, you know how the physiology goes wrong, and this gives to this uh, rise to this disease or that disease and how you can fix it. So I was really interested in the pathophysiology of the diseases uh, rather than practicing, um, uh, you know, uh, medicine itself. And uh, the way I felt is like, actually, so I love uh, pathophysiology of the disease. I love, uh, you know, uh, you know, finding a solution for it. I think the best way for me to go forward is to actually uh, try to understand the pathophysiology, uh, you know, go inside that go deeper and uh you know no question is bigger than uh, the brain itself right so uh that's how i got into it uh, uh, but uh yeah it's it turned out mm-hmm. to be too complicated you know it's uh it's i, I don't see it uh, being resolved you know anytime soon and by Can any... we can we talk
1: about the complication what part were you trying to focus on one part of the brain, or you trying to understand
2: the brain comp- works completely? Like, what was your oh, imperative? no, definitely I was. In, you know, uh, I started. I did my uh, PhD on motor control, and uh, I did my postdoc in uh, the uh, noradrenaline uh, role of noradrenaline in the uh, brain activity, and. Uh, So the neuromodulators, Uh, the challenge is that, you know, uh, I feel, I mean, this is, uh, this might be, um, you know, outside the the scope, but uh, the challenge is that, uh, you know, for us, uh, you know, we are, uh, humans are really uh, story oriented, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, the way we think about the stuff, it should be, you know, a simple straight line, right? So we are really accustomed to uh, linear studies and linear ideas, you know, uh, this is bad, this is good, this, you know, this causes, uh, you know, cancer, this causes that, Uh, but the challenge is that, you know, uh, if you go into further and further details, naturally those linear uh, linear stories do not hold up anymore. And that is not, uh, you know, that is what actually is the brain is about, right? I mean, it's the most complex uh, structure uh, there. You have, I don't know how many d- different data, uh, cell types. Uh, I think there are like a, maybe a hundred of them. Even if that was not the case, you have like 10 different nor- uh, neuromodulators and uh, neuropeptides and uh, neurotransmitters. And when you put that all together it becomes becomes such a complex system, right? And you know, uh, it's too much for us to understand. I personally do not believe we will ever have an uh, intuitive understanding of the brain, right? Mm -hmm. Because our intuition, as I said, uh, our intuition is pretty limited and linear now trying to uh, uh, just imagining um, you know a kind of a complex system that's almost impossible right and uh, but you know we could build uh, you know comp- other complex systems that could mimic and model the way the brain works that that is definitely doable you know so uh, I personally think that uh, you know, the way going forward in uh, the, you know, neuroscience is actually uh, the computational neuroscience and trying to bring different fields together to build a predictive model. Although we might not, at the end of the day, that model be, uh, might become too complicated that we wouldn't understand that one either. But at the same time, we have enough control to make predictions. So, uh, that is how I see it. And, uh, you know, the best way, uh, you know, you could think of uh, a complex system. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's the, the example of a dual pendulum, right? Uh, you know, a single pendulum is really straightforward. You know, it goes, uh, you know, it uh, resonates between two uh, points. But as soon as you add another pendulum, beneath that other, uh, the the first pendulum, uh, the movement uh, becomes chaotic. There is zero way that, I mean, there's no way you can predict how um, starting from the same point can actually uh, uh, go to uh, follow up in the same pattern because it's a complex system. And just thinking about that, uh, you realize that, okay, that uh, that is why we cannot come up with a straight answer. and to be fair, we don't have those straight answers in other field of medicine either you know how many times have you read an article that vitamin C is helpful for cold and vitamin C is not helpful for cold and that is not because some people are right and some people are wrong. It is simple that you know, uh, all of us, you know, go and start uh, evaluating this stuff in a really controlled, limited situation, and then try to generalize it to whole, uh, you know, world, right? And so it's still, you know, in that limited situation, their, uh, you know, kind of the conclusion probably is right, but that is the part that we generalize it to the rest of the states. That is where it all falls apart.
1: Mm-hmm. So like, I, I would love to like nerd out more about, uh, more, more about the neuroscience uh, you know? no. and I think we're going to, I
2: think we're going to, but
1: now that <laughs> Yuen's uh, joined us, um, Yuen, uh, I wanted to get a, get, get a little bit of your take of uh, how you joined the firm and how you got involved. Can, can you talk a little bit about your background? Um,
0: absolutely, Ravi. So it is great to be on this call with you guys yeah. and we appreciate the opportunity. So my background is I have been in healthcare and healthcare related fields for over 30 years. Um, I have managed um, operations in the larger organizations such as Bayer Bayer, as well as United Health Group, and also have uh, built startups from scratch, from startup. Uh, What Mohsen did and uh, uh, what interested me is really ability to be able to bring a solution for something that for the past um, 10, 15 years, I have been personally um, a believer that mental health is an issue and is a disease by itself, mm-hmm. and I'm glad that the industry in the last four or five years has recognized that uh, to be the case. So I saw some an opportunity where there is a solution that is grounded on um, academic uh, understanding and starts not from a technology point of view, but starts from understanding the clinical and 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 the uh, the effect of the um, the. Uh, solution on both behavior as well as physical uh, aspect of it, as well as is a solution that is can be skilled and expanded uh, rapidly. Right. So the challenge that we have and uh, behavior healthcare challenges that they have even before this pandemic that we're going through is the fact that there is not enough resources available to address all the, all the issues that are out there and all the people that are going through uh, behavioral health, mental health issues. So being able to clear, uh, deliver a solution that, um, that expands that field of reach and expands the efficacy of the solution and enables to engage membership in, in that respect is important. That really goes back to my background. I've worked and helped uh, organizations that have been in member engagement, uh, clinical uh, decision support, uh, predictive modeling type of solutions uh, built and get into the market, uh, both from again a larger corporation point of view as well as startups that I've worked with and
2: helped yeah.
0: bring up in that respect. So this is where that that's how we uh, you know we met at one of the um, uh, J.P. Morgan uh, conferences that hmm. uh, only in healthcare. Uh, constantly uh, congregate, and I really liked what Mosam was doing, and that's how we started
1: connecting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so thinking about this, this industry is, is is really picking up, right? Using neuroscience, understanding neuroscience to to optimize people. Can you guys talk a little bit more about the platform, about what you hope to like, how you hope to actually achieve results? Uh, I'm familiar with like cognitive behavioral therapy and like how how that can help people, but how do you intend uh, to do it as a platform?
0: Mostly, you want to take that.
2: Oh, sure. Uh, well, the idea is that you know, um, cognitive behavioral therapy is really a structured, right? I mean, when people think about you know uh, uh, therapy, a lot of people think of the what uh, is usually seen in the movies: somebody mm. is uh, lying down on a bench and talking constantly. Uh, well, that could be the case in talk therapy or something like that, but cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, is a really a structured uh, you know solution the idea is that uh, how you know you understand the diff- uh, the correlation between uh, your situation your thinking and your emotions and when you understand those uh, that relation you can actually change uh, how you feel like let's say you know uh, you call one of your friends and uh, they do not pick up okay so the way you f- react to this simple um, action is completely related to how you feel and what you feel happen. If you mm-hmm. know that your f- friend is, y- you know, uh, usually not organized and uh, they probably lost their phone, I mean, you wouldn't feel anything, right? I mean, said like, okay. Uh, if you feel that uh, you know they ignored you, that's why they didn't pick up the phone. You would feel angry or sad, and but if you feel maybe they are uh, sick and that is why they couldn't pick up the phone, well you would be worried and feel empathy for your friends. So you see the same action of somebody not picking up the phone could completely uh, uh, evoke different feelings, um, you know, uh, based on how you think uh, the underlying cause, and that that is what exactly CBT is trying to do, is. To try to teach you, you know how you can break each event and uh, stuff happening around you into those elemental parts, and how you can actually try to um, using more of the cognitive thinking uh, try to uh, come out with a different feeling uh, than, than what you usually feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, so it is a really a structured and a really effective uh, solution, uh, actually. Uh, It's considered the gold standard of care for uh, mood and anxiety disorders, which are like 65% of mental health problems. And uh, so even if you go to uh, a psychiatrist or Mm a psychologist for uh, receiving uh, CBT therapy, like two-thirds of the time uh, is spent by that uh, therapist or that uh, psychiatrist talking to you and teaching you techniques, right? which is the same for me for you or for you and for anybody else but hmm. you really don't need uh, the time of you know a specialist time to be spent you know repeating the general concepts that is not personalized to me you know to be repeated multiple times so that is how without that we can actually uh, bring it down i mean we have been working on uh, you know remote learning and yeah you know, yeah all those stuff for so long is that okay why couldn't we just uh, bring down all those uh, generalized concepts into you know some pre-designed learning modules that the uh, that the patients can learn on their own time i mean they wouldn't need to be a real time they they could take as much time to understand the concepts or go uh, review it or anything something that is not possible in a real time you know it, uh, in a real time you know, the, yeah. the clinician is talking and you should be processing at the same time but now you have the time and in our system you know at the end of each module there is a homework that tests you you know that ask you to try to practice what you learned in that module and the clinicians only provide personalized feedback to that homework right this way, they're not repeating, uh, you know, the same general concepts across mm. multiple pa- uh, patients. And just providing, you know, we are just using the clinicians for the personal response that personalized uh, uh, part of their uh, feedback, which is the essential part that nobody can, you know, uh, yeah. computer cannot uh, do. So this way, uh, a clinician using our platform, they can handle like, Three or four patients in one hour, rather than just one patient, uh, which might take one hour to an hour and a half. Yeah,
1: yeah. And on the flip side, for the patient, it's much cheaper because you're not oh, spending yeah. for like a full hour with that therapist anymore. you paying for the hourly rate. I mean, that's that's so that's so smart, right? That's so interesting. Like we don't think about, especially like these high performing, like high, uh, well, um, like you know, high um, professionals, like therapists and learned individuals. Doing like a cycling gig, or like they're teaching the same thing over and over to the same clients, right? Um, are you are you familiar enough to talk about exactly what is like copy and paste, like what what is like universal to people? What what are the, what are these exact modules that uh, that people uh, are, are
2: taught? So uh, we have an example. Of, uh, yeah, yeah. So we have a range of modules. We have a module for anxiety. We have module for depression. We have module for personality disorders. We have module for COVID which we actually, uh, you know, started building from ground up uh, mm-hmm. in May. Uh, so uh, the idea was that, you know, uh, again, uh, how you can build resilience, you know, and how you can deal with situations that might happen during COVID, right? You'd like uh, if you lost your work, you know, it is nothing to do with uh, your self-worth, right? It's a pandemic, you know, people are being laid off you might be one of them but it doesn't mean you're uh, worthless or useless or something like that mm. right? or uh, you know not every time that somebody coughs during the pandemic uh, they have covid they might have uh, simply uh, a seasonal allergy right so yeah. these are stuff that you when you talk about it and give examples about them you, you know people can really uh, sit with them and Also some solutions on how to deal with situations, you know, like uh, breathing techniques that, okay, when you feel really anxious about something, how how can you manage that? So those are some of the uh, concepts that we try to cover in the modules. Uh, But I would also like to talk uh, a little about the AI part of it, right? Yeah. Uh, So we we talked about, you know, now we are in the digital realm, And as I mentioned, we are trying to make sure that the clinicians are uh, using, we are using the clinician's time only for the part that matter and we cannot do it, uh, you know, uh, statically or dynamically. And there is a lot of, uh, you know, we know uh, that Amazon knows, you know, what we like to buy and, uh, you know, they show us the same, Uh, you know, advertisement and anything. And that is because there are uh, a lot of uh, information in our behaviors, right? Uh, Well, there's no reason that information cannot be used for something better like therapy. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, the way we see it is that there is lots of uh, information in the way we walk, in the way we talk, in the tone of our voice, or the way we use language. Uh, which uh, you know we call it uh, uh, at this point. I mean, we not it's generally called behavioral phenotyping. It's how we can uh, you know measure behavior in a way that we can you know uh, the same way that we measure uh, uh, red blood cells or uh, white blood cells. You know, so bringing uh, uh, the behavior into a realm of measurement. Mm-hmm. So, Uh, we have been uh, working on using natural language processing. So Mm -hmm. uh, each week our uh, clients uh, write one to two pages, right? And we have uh, homework from session one, session two, session three, session four, and so forth. And we know that what was uh, the, uh, you know, the module that they went and did the homework. So we have a, Spectrum of writing, so we can look how did the writing change from session one to session twelve, right? What was the kind of words that were uh, used mostly in session one, uh, again, you know, uh, uh, versus those used in session twelve? How what was the structure of the language? You know, how much they talked about uh, their symptoms in the first uh, module and the last module, and that gives us some uh clues that okay now if i get a text
1: yeah sorry about that was on... no,
2: yeah go ahead now if we get a text and read something can we now predict a patient's mental status right based on that only given site because now we can complain oh. this okay the number of percentage of time this person is talking about their symptoms is lower so it's probably they have less problem or more problem that's just a really Uh, just a simplistic example of how we do it. And uh, that is what we have been doing over the last year. Uh, What uh, we are doing this year is uh, integrating variable information. Uh, So uh, again, you know, uh, if you go to uh, a clinician, um, uh, you know, uh, and if for, uh, you know, for depression and anxiety, some of the questions they ask is that, how is your sleep changed? Right? Uh, how is your appetite change? Have you uh, lost weight or have you gained weight? And these were really, uh, you know, kind of uh, qualitative measures. You know, my sleep is better or worse, but we nowadays, every day have something under, everybody has something on their hand that gives you the exact number of, you know, uh, hours. When did they go to sleep? When did they wake up? You know, how long was the deepest sleep? So the, it would it would be crazy not to use that uh, information, that detailed information, uh, for uh, clinical purposes, uh, and still, you know, rely on the person, you know, judging. Oh, my activity is low or less, or my sleep is good or bad. So that is uh, the second thing that we are incorporating uh, in our platform.
1: Mm-hmm. Over last year, um, I started using um, a, 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 a wearable called uh, Whoop. Right, like Whoop is like a, uh, a very high-end Fitbit. It's like it's meant for like it's meant initially for athletes and for high performers. Now it's come, it's more commercially, it's aimed more co- for commercial applications. So I got it just to get some information, and it it gave so much insights onto my body type. You know, it was measuring mostly my heart rate, but it measured something called um, heart rate variability, right? Mm-hmm. By knowing how different your heart rate is throughout the day, it can it can it gives you a baseline of how variable it can become, and that measure can indicate the level of anxiety your body can is going through, how much it handles, how well you're sleeping versus not sleeping, and the and the app is very intuitive. Like when I go to sleep, it notices the the the, the sense in that and logs right away, like this is the time you're sleeping this time and all you do is wake up next day and confirm it. And it tells you how well you slept, how much you moved, right? Like, you know, your REM sleeps for your non-REM sleep cycles, all from a wristband, right? Exactly. So, exactly. yeah, so is there like a, a need for like um, a wearable or can you just use your phone, integrate it to your system that can measure uh, things uh, like for us automatically so that less inputs?
2: Um, so, uh, <laughs> I have a, a soapbox uh, <laughs> ready for that. Uh, so the idea is that uh, yes and no. I mean, the, the point and the answer is that, you know, there are uh, different uh, you know diseases that, you know, we can evaluate stuff. Like uh, if you have diabetes, uh, you know, the qu- uh, question is, uh, you want to know the patient to know their blood glucose, right? Now you can have 10 different ways of evaluating your blood glucose. It could be a prick in the blood, or it could be, you know, through, through the skin or something uh, a, a patch uh, attached here. The challenge with mental health is that there is no single variable uh, mm-hmm. that uh, we could say this is what really decides what, uh, if some person's mental health is good or bad, right? And uh, so uh, while, you know, those uh, each piece of information is uh, correlative, right? Uh, there are groups that are working on the tone of voice. Uh, you might have seen uh, Amazon has this uh, uh, variable that uh, listens to your tone of voice and gives you report. There are groups that are actually just uh, looking at the uh, pattern of your cell phone use, right? Uh, there is this uh, uh, company called Strong that they have looked at, you know, how how that, and the most indicative of uh, someone's uh, mental status was how regularly they're charged cell phone. Sorry. My turn. Right on, right on cue. <laughs> yeah, My how, turn too. Yeah. Uh, so, how regularly uh, they charge their cell phone or stuff like that. But the challenge is that no single one variable would be the silver bullet. Mm-hmm. You would need uh, a big data of all these different uh, behavioral phenotyping. Uh, you know the sleep, the the pattern of activity. You know your pattern of uh, word usage. You know uh, a big range of activities needs to be integrated. For this data before they become really helpful in, uh, you know, managing mental status.
1: Hmm. Cool. Um, you went. Maybe you can touch on here about like the more, uh, the, the business side of, of this industry, right? Now, like you know, we are hearing a lot about you know the issues with sleep and people not sleeping enough, anxiety and depression going up and up, especially amongst the youth and stuff. What is happening from the industry's point of, point of perspective? Uh, what are the changes that are happening?
0: Well, it, it, it's a very good question. Thanks for asking that. Uh, in my opinion, uh, the silver lining of the pandemic has been a wake up call for all of us, mm-hmm. right? So it's up to very recently, many of the people that even had the solutions and capabilities to deliver were basically brushed aside for more of a traditional approach to um, be dealing with behavioral health and uh, people who have that issue, um, the um, what happened in the last one year is so unfortunate for all of us, right? But at the same time, it gave us the ability to really understand that there are ways to look outside of the box and really approach that. And that's where that's where I see the market. Your question is. Really, what is happening in that? I see a lot of activities in that, a lot of opportunities for um, organizations to be able to take um, uh, charge Uh, as you, I'm I'm sure you see it and we see it in both US and Canada, uh, the uh, behavioral health in the whole area of the digital health really um, bubbled up right up to the surface, right? So it became to be uh, perhaps one of the most um, uh, noticeable challenges that not only they have to deal with during this pandemic, but is for here to stay for a long period of time Mm -hmm. after. A lot of other things, for example, the uh, the, uh, what they call the the second wave which was essentially those people who didn't get their uh typical care uh during the pandemic uh, you know that are at risk they will go back at risk so this uh, this would be you know they they will have that under control soon uh or within some months after whereas this um the ever help is really a, 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 it's called the fourth wave is one that not only uh, is going to stay with us for a long time, but it will carry on. A good example that Moson brings up uh, with the hurricane that we had in Louisiana for five years after the use of alcohol was up 140% uh, hmm. versus versus before. So that type of trend is really alarming and uh, something that uh, we're hoping to be able to um, help curve it and be able to help understand and deliver the solutions that people need in, in that respect. But um, for those younger people, uh, just, and, you know, talking from the experience of people around me, not being able, the anxiety that uh, that sits with the uh, adolescents and younger people for not being able to be at school, not be able to do things that they would do or uh, attend the proms that they would do, that's real. That's something mm-hmm. that we need to work with and we need to understand and we need to put resources behind it to manage it. And that's where the challenge of resource versus uh functionality becomes to be an issue right so if yeah. there are not enough resources how do you deliver that solution to them and use the resources at the top of their you know their uh their practice essentially uh, practicing at the top of their license mm-hmm.
1: does that make yeah. sense no absolutely i think those are all those are all valid points and i think it need to be addressed moving forward uh, i think the post-pandemic world it's going to show us really the resilience, the resiliency of uh, of our society, right? Where we have bounced back, we have commercialized a lot of solutions in in this gap, in these gap years, right? Where it, we're living in a completely different reality, <laughs> right? And I think we're going to see, like, I think it, it's really like a, a testing ground, I guess, for for uh, what the future can become, right? Because everything's so compressed here, like we feel everything more because everything's all we're all like you know there's like over like there's billions of people all experiencing the same reality at the same time and and yet it's different from from what's normal right so everything's kind of magnified so but i think i think the main issue with this is it's going to be a, a, the lack of empathy because right. a lot of people are stuck at home and if they're good they don't necessarily going to see other people who are doing worse than them right like yeah, we have social media and stuff like that, but not everyone posts all the all the negatives, right? So, the, the 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 difference between people who are like you know you're no longer traveling on 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 public roads, you're no longer been tra- traveling much on uh, on like the uh, public transit, right? You're not running into people of different clo- social statuses, so- social backgrounds. You're not gonna notice people who are who are, might be suffering or going through things. So, there's a, there's a the struggle now is where people are gonna lose empathy for people who are not good do, not doing well right but the, the the pro point is that solutions like yours could become could lower the barrier of entry you know one make it cheaper but more accessible and uh, allow for more data data to be collected to allow for more proactive treatments from like from a wider scope right
0: absolutely you're absolutely right that scalability is really the one thing that uh, we are hanging our hat on its mm. the ability to uh, to not only have uh, validated because that's also important. If you scale with something that's bad, you're scaling bad thing mm. in, in and growing something that is not effective, right? Yeah. But if you're scaling something that is already proven to be validated, clinically validated and effective, that's where you know that that's where the uh, rubber meets the road is uh, is uh, is doing the right things and expanding on those right things. and that's that's where our mission is to really be able to deliver on that on that basis of, uh, understanding uh, the, um, uh, the effectiveness of our solution, but delivering and delivering uh, the productivity that is measurable. That's the most important thing, because if you cannot measure, then you cannot win in this, in this world, right. Measurable and also replicable.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah yeah um, Wilson, um flipping back to a neuroscience question um have like you know in your in your in your uh, in your drive to understand this problem and, and it drive it forward how much uh, with clinically or uh, or you know off channel how much time and effort have you th- have you have you put into like researching like consciousness like the origin of consciousness i think that's one of the most fundamental problems about uh, neuroscience and and uh, and uh, psychology right they call it the hard problem understanding where, boom, where where all this comes from, right? So we know the uh, underlying processes of how anxiety works uh, or depression can be c- come from, but from a top-down perspective, from uh, uh, how we experience reality to how that affects our biology, we're still trying to understand that.
2: Do you have any thoughts? Well, you know, uh, challenge, you know, the, uh, first, no. <laughs> the, the reason is that, you know, UN um, uh, mentioned it. You know, we, the, it's really hard uh, to evaluate those questions because it's really hard to measure those questions, right? Uh, so uh, what I have been trying to do, uh, like in motor control, is like how does the uh, you know activity of the motor cortex or sensory cortex changes, you know, when the uh, when the body is making a specific move. Uh, Mm -hmm. Or, you know, looking at the activity of this small uh, locus that generates uh, the norepinephrine through the whole brain. And really, you know, uh, the the challenge is that we cannot even understand the brain at those levels, Mm -hmm. let alone going into that much deeper, uh, you know, kind of uh, epiphenomena of what is happening underneath, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, th- th- that's the biggest challenge. We cannot uh, have a good model of the secretory and, uh, you know, and how the brain works. And now, uh, before going to the next level to make those, uh, ask those harder questions.
1: Yeah, um, it's something I've been, I've been following really, really like since I was younger. Um, in my undergrad, I, I, was, I ran across something called uh, the, the Penrose papers by Robert uh, Roger Penrose, doc, Doctor, um, uh, sorry, uh, Sir Roger uh, Penrose. Now he got knighted. Um, you know, he he wrote this like like mathematical quantitative proof on how uh, how how, how um, consciousness could erupt from uh, the quantum realm, right? And it's very theoretical. It's very like mind-bending. It's it passed around a lot of a lot of thinkers and it opened up this idea of like we're so like far away from understanding the process of brain. Right, there's, um, uh, there's an institute in, in California called the, the Singularity Institute, right so The singularity being when AI uh, you know AI and, and, and machines can get to this point, a singularity where it can become smarter than humans right And they think of it as a computational problem where it becomes if you can increase the computational capability of machines, they can match the computational ability of, of, of the human brain and therefore you can download consciousness and, and operate it on a virtual realm. The problem with that thinking is that we don't really understand the brain enough to understand how to even mechanize it, how to replicate it, right? And there's so much research and thinking behind that. So, so thank you for go- going in and alluding to that. Um, you know, going back to y- your research, especially with blending, um, you know, neuroscience research with AI and intelligence, right? Um, recently, I've been I've been following a lot of work of uh, the historian uh, Yuval Harari. Are you familiar with them? Uh, Yuval, you know, he's gotten famous for his book *Sapiens* and *Homo uh, Deus*, um, uh, the evolution of humanity. But his his thinking really is it's it's a very uh, a dystopian kind of kind of thinking towards where 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 what happens when um, um like uh, when medical tech technologies kind of blends with AI, right? With this when sorry biotech and AI kind of come together. Where machines can eventually, software can uh, can know us better than we do, right? And the interplay, what's gonna happen there? So, like one of the one of the one of the one of the problems right now is that social media sites, with their billions of dollars of valuations, is really the leaders in, in thought when it comes to how anxiety and uh, and and machines kind of interlate, right? For instance, like Facebook got a lot of hot water a few years ago. For running expe- social experiments on whether to, they can see if just by influencing what content you see, if they can influence your moods, right? And they're proven they can do this, right? So now that the uh, that algorithms can control us on a, on a very massive level and it may be even an introscopic level individually, it calls into a lot of questions about the interplay between our society, right? Who's really the master and who's really the operator, right? And what, what what I love about your kind of technology is that, yeah, it helps people get more support and, and help, but what does the future of this look like, right? Like, is it become more of like an intuitive thing, like a plugin on your device that's just like working with different multiple things? Like, how can this technology move into the future and become more like effortlessly in, in tune with us to make us better, make us understand and quality, to make us like uh, more conscious of the things that's working against us?
2: Well, you know, I mean, the. Technology has always had that effect that you know you can do better and you right. could do worse as well right uh, and uh, that is why we need uh, ethics and, uh, studies on this you know example exactly. mm-hmm. uh, you know if uh, we are relegating the decision uh, to a machine, how that machine should make decisions and Uh, And and I'm not that much worried about that. I'm sure we, uh, um, as this becomes more and more advanced, we will, uh, you know, um, come up with, uh, you know, ethical solutions. Uh, It is the same thing about genetic, you know, uh, interventions and uh, uh, any other kind of technology, you know. Um, But what I'm worried about uh, is uh, the... Uh, the gap, you know. I'm not mm. that worried about, you know, what happens when machines overtake us. <laughs> I'm more worried about what happens to uh, the the time that a part of the society can take advantage of the the, the, the machine, but another part cannot, right? Mm. And you know, you you, uh, you uh, have seen that uh, in a lot of studies, and you know uh, that. You know, they they talk about this that you know a lot of these technologies like first recognition technologies work uh, less effective on um, you know uh, the the colored faces than you know the, the white faces, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, also the other part is that what happens uh, when you know, we bring our own biases to the machine. The machine is like, uh, at the end of the day, learning, right? Uh, The the challenge is, again, uh, how and uh, who is uh, influencing those machines, and that is something that we should really be thinking about and have, uh, you know, fields of science (laughs) actually looking at it to come up with actual solutions.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I like how you brought up the ethics behind that. You know, I think that that's that's become a, a very uh, tell, telltale science of our age is now we're looking into the ethics of exactly who, what you said, like who is behind the algorithms, who's uh, who's deciding, who gets to decide what's right and wrong, what to do, right? And, and uh, the forefront of this is like the machine learning software behind autonomous driving, right? The, the classic problem, right? If you have a driver and something happens in front of you, does the car swerve and hit a pedestrian? Or to go off the bridge and kill the the driver. Who's who? Like you know, how do they make those decisions? How do they how do they play that right? And yeah. someone's got to input these kind of things. So, the ethics behind this is you know for hundreds of years it's becoming it was theoretical. What would happen is this is this. now it's applicable, right? Now we got to like, tell another another intelligence on how to operate. So I think we're like that's a really interesting age we're living in, right? It is. It is. Yeah. So let's let's tying back to you know. Being a startup, being a founder, right? I want to I want to approach this right. You went from a classical, more uh, academic, uh, from an academic practice now to a commercializing a technology, right? To and developing technology. Was there a learning curve in building this platform and understanding the software, understanding how things work?
2: Definitely, definitely. And again, uh, well, the biggest learning curve uh, was the part that I didn't know at all, right? Mm. Uh, technology I was familiar with, definitely it is, everything is more complicated than it looks like, right? So the technology was, uh, not an exception, uh, but, you know, there are so much, you know, intricacies about, uh, there are stuff that you cannot even think of, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if you are thinking about, uh, you know, making a startup, you don't think about, you know, uh accountants and lawyers <laughs> but those are the ones that actually you would need them from day one and those are the ones that are um, most of the time yeah, have uh, would be the biggest cost for you and uh, your uh, you know kind of uh, enterprise so uh, there's definitely uh, a lot of uh, challenges you know and growing a team you know going from one and two persons to like 10 persons right and uh, uh, you know, as an academic, you're not really, uh, you know, trained uh, how to manage uh, a group, right? I mean, it's like mostly you do all your research. And to be fair, that's sometimes a problem with a lot of the labs as well, that the uh, principal investigator doesn't really know how to manage groups. Uh, and how to structure, what is a good structure? You know, it's like uh, A lot of times, uh, you know, if you look at my desktop, there are uh, files all over my desktop. Uh, And uh, when you start a startup, you tend to uh, work with it just the same way. You know, you put uh, this document there and that document there, but you soon realize that, you know, this is not sustainable. And again, that is exactly why I asked uh, a veteran like UN to join us and help us with the, Uh, you know, commercial structuring and, you know, all those different uh, minutias that I had no idea about. And yeah, I mean, you know, how you uh, take an idea, you now you have a product, how you actually take it to the market and sell it, you know? I was like, I never sold uh, anything in my life, right, to anybody. And uh, so... How would you do it? And how would you talk about something? Uh, you know, in in science, you you are uh, you know are really really uh, cautioned against you know talking too grandiose about anything, and you you learn to be as precise as possible, not to overgeneralize or this and that. But then you come and try to have that attitude, uh, and you soon realize that that's actually not uh, a matter that works. You know, I I remember one day that I was completely shocked that we were talking to a potential investor. And, uh, you know, at the end of our uh, presentation, uh, he told me, like, you obviously uh, know what you're doing, but you don't uh, come across as a car salesman. And I always thought that that is a good thing but he was actually talking about it in a, in a negative thing that, you know, it don't look like somebody that actually can sell this. And uh, so, um, but as an investor, my uh, bottom line is, you know, making my money, you know, uh, double your my money or something like that. So if I don't trust you to be the, uh, the salesman, why would I invest in you? So it needs a team, it needs a village, you know, to really, uh, you know, make this a successful. And and to be fair, I mean, we had some success, but, uh, uh, you know, we are not yet uh, an IPO. So (laughs) we might still be doing something wrong and uh, two years down the road, we fail. Who knows? Uh, But I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot. And uh, definitely, you know, I learned a lot from uh, people who were, uh you know selflessly uh you know present like as i said uh i met you uh by complete fluke in a meeting and he was so nice to share his uh, expertise and knowledge and provide feedback to me and uh, he's not alone i've uh, received over the last three four years i've had received uh uh, consultations from advisors, all sorts of advisors, and, uh, well, that, that is what it takes to actually take a, you know, make a technology and bring it to it.
1: Definitely. I believe it takes a community to raise a startup. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Right. And, uh, I mean, what you described right there, I think that's such a classic problem, right? Like when someone develops a problem, you think of entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs are people who just magically just devise these things. But people who are like chasing these problems, I, I feel like I find the most interesting ones are the people who are coming from a very specialized field who have done years of research or uh, re- years of uh, professional experience or working in a field who then dive and find a very unique niche problem that has a, a wide applications but needs to be solved and can double down on it. In the case of yourself, you know, taking this neuroscience capability, this this lack this uh, this uh, strategic blank that's operating in therapies and trying to figure out how to automate that away and and make it more accessible to everybody else. I mean, that's such a that that's, that requires a deep level of knowledge and understanding, right to, to, to implement. But then to complement that, you you're going to need somebody with the business skills to develop this, right? I mean one of the one of the one of the most uh, the benefiting part of of the innovation ecosystem, uh, innovation industry is that, yeah, there's a lot of money to be made if you can do this well and, and operate it, but the problems of it is a, is a launch capability, right? It's like, you want to solve this problem? Cool, you got to figure out your accounting, you got to figure out your legal, you got to figure out how to structure this, how to lead people to hire people, the HR, the compliance, right? There's a whole bunch of operational knowledge you need to go out and solve the problem that you actually want to solve, right? Exactly. So, Yuen, uh, maybe we can jump. To, you can jump in here. Uh, can you talk, uh, and we'll end here with this uh, kind of uh, acknowledgement. What, is a, what does it take to find you know, a, especially something, like, something like this, like a commercially research application that comes out and I figure out how to commercialize it? What are the, what are the problem sets? Uh, what are the strategies you implement? How do you go about doing that?
0: And that's a very good question. And first of all, my hat is off to Mohsen because one of the things he realized, which most um, startup uh, founders have a hard time to realize is the fact that he needs help. He needs other people that are better than him in other areas. Not everybody can be an expert. The challenge I see, and I've seen that a number of times in the market that a lot of founders, they believe that they can do everything themselves. They have, they, the, on the understand the technology, they understand everything and they feel as they can also manage and run the other parts of it as themselves very rarely those people are actually uh, are capable of doing that. So uh, the village, the community, putting that whole thing together in a way that works together well and picking the right people to bring in that are on fundamentally on the, are, are on the same path and at the same goal, having someone who has the same vision is a very important thing in that, in that respect, finding those people are the probably the one of the toughest thing. And that's one thing that I, Truly believe that we are doing uh, optis doing well is not essentially uh, bringing everybody in, but bringing those people who have the right vision and the right and address the right uh, resources in there.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: The um, challenges of the startups is exactly what you mentioned, right? Is all of the above is really how do I uh, take the trash out and at the same time get on a call and be the president of the company? Um, uh, and show myself as president of the company uh, in that respect. And um, the most important thing that perhaps I can uh, uh, offer as as the um, uh, advice to those who are startups is have a plan, right? Mm. Have a vision, have a mission, know exactly what you want to do, where you want to go and make sure that people that are on board with you are also following and understand that vision and mission and are buying into it because otherwise if they are all doing different things just imagine different people going different ways it's just not going to come together
1: Hmm. that's great that's a great sentiment um definitely seek help where you you need help Mm take the community to raise a startup Um, Thank you both for coming on. It's been an hour. It's been a pleasure to have uh, both of you on. Um, Really love the applications of what you're talking about, uh, especially getting therapy to more people in a more cost-effective way, in a more accessible way, more universal way. Uh, Really wish you guys the best of luck. Uh, Thank you for coming on, guys. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you for having us.